Today on Him We Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville, the second message in our series about the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. Today's topic is called A Church to Be Thankful For and Proud Of. So where does this title come from? Well, we're going to see that Paul praised the early Thessalonian churches for preserving the gospel and growing their faith deep during some heavy opposition. It's that message that inspires so many Christians today to do the same, to endure, especially during perplexing times for living out their faith in Jesus. We'll also learn that opposition comes in many different forms. Here's Pastor John with part one of the message, A Church to be Thankful for and Proud of. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4, so let's read that together. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning verse, um, beginning verse 1. So this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, Paul, Silvanus, at Silas, and Timothy. So uh, those are his traveling companions, his missionary traveling companions. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar to you ever? (laughs) Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Paul says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring." Um, the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism asks this, asks this question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? It's an interesting question because life in America is for the most part comfortable, isn't it? Uh, we have comfortable homes. We have comfortable beds. We have air conditioning We have electric grids that usually work. I told you there it was coming. I wrote this yesterday. I had no idea. And Ken, who is a JEA engineer, taught us this morning about what happens behind the scenes when we lose power. So if you didn't know that right before church this morning, we had no power in this building. Zilch. So we were thinking, okay, there's no comfort. (laughs) We have an abundance of food. We have massive grocery stores. Um, We have clothes. We have clothing stores. We have good roads. I can tell you, after coming back from driving in the roads in in, uh, in the mountains of Northern Ireland, I'm thankful for the road system that we have in this country. Um, We have access to medicine. We have doctors. We have gyms and we have spas. We have movie theaters. Well, we have day spas. My wife likes to frequent those. We have shopping malls. We have good schools. We have good school teachers. We have freedom of speech. We have freedom of religion. We have freedom of assembly. We have it. We have life pretty comfortable in America, but maybe not. Because you see, these comforts are nice, and I'm glad we have electricity this morning so that you can hear my voice, right? But ultimately, these comforts are deceptive, 
They cannot comfort one when everything else one knows in this life becomes unreliable because friendships fail. Marriages collapse. Jobs that we love sometimes end. You may have a comfortable house, but it can be burned down in an accidental fire. You may have a wonderful bed, but it will eventually wear out. You may have a great marriage now, but in the future you might have great troubles. Such comforts are not really comfort. When life goes south, as we say, so to speak, many people in our culture turn to comfort. Comfort in quotation marks. They turn to the comfort of drugs. They turn to the comfort of entertainment. They turn to the comfort of vacation and travel. They turn to the comfort of sexual immorality. They turn to the comfort of binge eating called comfort foods, right? But in reality, comfort foods, too much of it eventually becomes very discomfortable, destroys your health. So these, however comfortable these comforts are, genuine comfort cannot be found in these imaginary comforts. The comforts that we have in 21st century America are not the norm for many Christians today. Uh, Just this past week, there was an in-depth report in the Wall Street Journal on May the 12th that caught my attention and it was entitled, The Epical Shift of Christians from the Middle East. The article goes on to detail how Christians, like the Jews before them, are fleeing the Middle East due to extreme violence and persecution. Not very comfortable for them. The fact is, the comforts that we have in our culture are not the norm for God's people throughout much of history. We live in Disney World in this country, basically. So the letter of 2 Thessalonians was written to a culture not unlike the violent, persecuting culture of the Middle East today. So sometimes it's hard for us to really grasp the import and the impact of this letter because we're just not there. Paul, as we learned last week, wrote First and Second Thessalonians to a new church plant filled with young believers who were facing persecution for their faith. In fact, he says in First Thessalonians chapter one verse six that the Thessalonians' acceptance of the gospel was accompanied with much affliction. He says, "You receive the word in much affliction." We have insight into the affliction that they experienced, as I showed you last week from Acts 17. Paul and Silas and Timothy preached the gospel in Thessalonica, and immediately a mob comes up and begins to persecute Paul and his traveling companion, missionary companions, Silas and Timothy. And because they couldn't get to them, they go to the house of Jason, who was a member, who was a citizen of Thessalonica, who had received the gospel, and they persecute him and his family and drag him off to jail. And so we see from the very beginning of this church that this young church, this young little church plant in a sea of pagan people upon immediate reception of the gospel, begin to be persecuted and experience afflictions for their faith. 
And so the pressing pastoral matter that, uh, of chapter 1 that Paul addresses is the persecution of believers. Believers who are going through very trying, hard, difficult hardships in their life. And so the key pastoral issue of chapter 1 is comfort. He even carries it over to chapter to chapter 2, as he, as he ends in chapter 2, he brings this idea of comfort back up and he prays for them in verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, listen, who loved us. God our Father who loved us. Can't wait to get to that passage. And gave us eternal comfort. There's this whole theme of comfort. And good hope through grace. Grace. May he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And so 2 Thessalonians, is con- it, it, he opens up this letter with this pastoral issue of comforting believers going through very hard, difficult circumstances in their life. And he grounds this comfort in the hope of the gospel, which is the second coming of Christ, because we said that this letter of 2 Thessalonians is organized around one central theme, the blessed hope of the Christian, the glorious second coming of Jesus. Every chapter, all three chapters, um, the Lord's second coming underlines Paul's thought in every chapter in this letter. And so chapter 1, he is going to introduce the comfort of the glorious second coming of Jesus to Christians who are suffering. And so he begins this letter by directing these young persecuted believers to the hope of the gospel, the glorious second coming of Jesus, because Jesus' second coming, the hope of the gospel, is the bedrock truth that provides true and lasting comfort when everything else in this life fails. The hope of the gospel is the believer's true comfort, Paul teaches us in this chapter. Christ's return is a certainty, it is a hope, it is a confidence, it is a comfort on which you can rest and on which you must rest your faith. So with this whole context in mind, this morning we're going to look at these opening four verses, and in these opening four verses... We're going, to see, we're going to examine three ways that Paul seeks to comfort suffering Christians. Three ways in these opening verses that Paul seeks to comfort suffering Christians. Let's look at verses 1 and 2, and here's the first way that Paul does it. Paul comforts the Thessalonians by confirming their adoption into God's family. Paul is seeking to comfort the Thessalonians who are suffering by confirming their adoption into God's family. Look at verses 1 and 2 and notice how Paul begins this letter. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, again, Silvanus is Silas. These are his traveling missionary companions that he took with him to help plant these churches. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians, now look at this, here it is, if you read it too quick, you'll miss it. To the church of the Thessalonians, look, in God our Father. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So Paul's initial greeting to these Thessalonian believers is almost identical to his greeting in 1 Thessalonians, but there's one small but significant difference here. Paul describes the Thessalonian believers in verse 1, and listen, as being in God our Father. That's very significant, because ordinarily Paul speaks of believers as being in Christ, and therefore he's emphasizing the believer's union with Christ, and that's absolutely correct. But here, Paul, as he begins this letter to young believers who are suffering severely for their faith, he describes them as being in God our Father. So by this phrase, Paul is seeking from the very outset of this letter to comfort young suffering believers by confirming their adoption into God's family. He characterizes them as being in God our Father. This this phrase, in God our Father, emphasizes that God the Father loves and cares for this young persecuted church. It emphasizes the care of God, the love of God for those who are in his church. And so when we go through trying and difficult times, one of the temptations that we face is to question God's fatherly care and goodness. Um, John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, he says this, he, he writes, quote, The real sting of suffering is not misfortune itself, nor even the pain of it, or the injustice of it, but the apparent God-forsakenness of it. Pain is endurable, but the seeming indifference of God is not. If you've ever gone through a hard time in your life, you will at some point begin to question, I wonder if God, my Father, cares I wonder if he really loves me, because this stinks. And the cross of Christ stands as a historical and eternal reminder that God our Father is not indifferent to our sufferings, but that for Christ's sake, we have been adopted into his family, and he cares. It is through our union with Christ, because Paul also addresses them as those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so it is through our union with Christ that we now have the privilege, as Jesus teaches us in the disciples' prayer to pray, we have the privilege to address God as our Father. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Peter is writing to also persecuted believers, and he reminds them that we can trust God our Father, and he says, cast all our anxieties on him because, listen, he cares for us. Also, don't forget to keep in mind the overall context of this letter. Remember that Paul, remember that the Lord's second coming underline Paul's thinking in every chapter in this letter. It's always in the background. So in addition to confirming God the Father's care for us now in our hardships and afflictions, our adoption also confirms our Father's promised inheritance in the future. Paul is already beginning to point them to their glorious hope of the second coming through reminding them of their adoption. Why? 
Because all who are in God our Father now will receive his full promised inheritance when Christ returns. The doctrine of adoption, which is the highest privilege of the gospel, here Paul is beginning with, the doctrine of, the doc, the doctrine of adoption always points us to the future, to the glorious return of Christ. Our adoption directs our faith to the hope of the gospel, the glorious second coming of Christ. When Christ returns on resurrection day, all that the Father has promised us in our adoption now will become a full reality then. And if you are suffering, that's great hope. In Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, the Apostle Paul says, The Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The second coming of Christ, we will receive the fullness of our inheritance as sons. And Paul is directing these suffering believers to that fullness of that inheritance. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, and verses 22 through 24 to say this. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth unto now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. And so Paul begins this letter by confirming to these suffering young believers their adoption into God's family, the highest privilege of the gospel, and he does it to comfort them who are in the midst of very trying and difficult circumstances. So that's the first way Paul seeks to comfort suffering Christians. Second, look at verse 3. Paul comforts the Thessalonians by giving thanks to God for their increasing faith and their love in the midst of persecution. Look at verse 3. He says, we ought always, this is our obligation we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because, here it is, your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul's thanksgiving for the Thessalonian spiritual growth is intended to comfort them in their affliction. I mean, the, the point, the, the, the practical application point is clear here. When you're going through a hardship, you need others in the body of Christ to give you words of encouragement. Right? That's what Paul's doing here. And he's not only encouraging, and the way that he encourages and comforts them is by giving thanks to God for them. His thanksgiving is intended to produce in a, a positive emotional response in these young believers. That is, I'm going to encourage you for your growth in the midst of hardship so that you'll be encouraged to continually grow further. 
Um, there's, a, there's an old saying that I love to give to people, seldom is there heard an encouraging word. Right? Seldom is there heard an encouraging word. And this is what the Apostle Paul is doing. He begins his letter by expressing heartfelt gratitude for the Thessalonians' spiritual growth in the midst of persecution. Now remember and think about this letter for a minute. The Thessalonian church had problems. It had significant problems. It was far from perfect. In chapter 2, there, was fault, there were false teachers and false teaching that Paul had to do to correct the church. So there were people who needed to be corrected in this church. In chapter 3, there were disorderly believers who needed to be disciplined. But nevertheless, Paul begins his letter with a deep sense of obligation to give continual thanks to God for God's great work of grace in the lives of these young believers in Thessalonica. And I want you to notice, look at what Paul writes here. This is very important. Notice what he says, that this Thanksgiving is both necessary and appropriate. It's the right thing to do. He says, we ought always to give, in the Greek here, continual thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Paul's thanksgiving was necessary, it was appropriate, it was the right thing to do because he knows very well that their growth in the midst of hardship was not the result of their own efforts, but it was the result of the gospel of grace working in their life. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, listen to verses 13 and 14. He says it again. We ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the Lord. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth, that is the gospel. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says their thanksgiving to God is the right and proper thing to do, this necessity, this propriety of thanking God is so important in the Christian life. Um, this necessity and propriety of thanking God is captured in our communion service. Remember the, the celebrant, which is a pastor, he says to you, let us give thanks to the Lord our God, right? And you respond, it is just and right to do so. And then I say, it is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. It is a good thing, Paul says, it is right to give thanks to God for his work of grace in our lives. And so look at these two qualities that Paul gives thanks to God for. The first one, he gives thanks to God for their faith that is growing abundantly. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. Now, this is remarkable because, remember, the Thessalonians are in very difficult, harsh, 
challenging circumstances in their life. They are being persecuted and undergoing afflictions, as Paul writes to them. And despite that, their faith, Paul says, is remarkable. It is growing abundantly. Paul was deeply concerned about the state of his young converts in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. Because remember, when Paul brought the gospel, he almost had to immediately leave the city because of persecution. And so in his mind, you can, you can just um, imagine that he's wondering, how are they going? How are they doing? How are they getting along? And so he wrote to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, expressing his concern for their faith. He says, I want to come visit you again to supply what is lacking in your faith. And so he was deeply concerned that this hardship, this difficulty, this trials that they were facing would, would cause their faith to be lacking. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called A Church to be Thankful for and Proud of, Part 1. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time 